This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. As CPR News has been reporting, Colorado will join a lawsuit led by California to challenge President Trump's national emergency declaration. We broke the news Sunday night that the state attorney general would sign on to a multi-state suit. All of this likely won't come as a surprise to the president who anticipated a legal fight. So I think what will happen is sadly we'll be sued and sadly uh, it'll go through a process and happily we'll win, I think. As for how Colorado could be harmed by this, the state AG's office points to diverting funds from drug interdiction and military construction to pay for a border wall. But Phil Weiser, Colorado's attorney general, tells me his concerns aren't purely financial. We're harmed from a perspective of we in Colorado are committed to the rule of law, and the dangerousness of this precedent is something that should scare all Americans. We have defined limits on executive power. We as Americans need that to be enforced. I want to read for you just a little excerpt of an op-ed. It's by a lawyer that actually President Trump almost hired himself, former U.S. attorney for D.C., Joe DeGeneva. He says, despite the ominous-sounding name, national emergency declarations are commonplace having been issued dozens of times since they were formalized in 1976. In fact, there have been these declarations from this administration that have not gotten so much attention. What is it about this one for you? There are a couple things that are really concerning here. First, the amount of money that's going to be spent. This is not a small amount of money. We're talking billions of dollars being redirected from purposes that Congress authorized to this, I'll say, so-called emergency. That gets to the second point. We have fewer people going over the border today than any time in quite some time. And so to say that constitutes an emergency begs the question, something is not as bad as it was before when it was an emergency and it's one now. That's a scary precedent because it would give huge authority to the executive branch to act on its own. And yet if there were a Democrat in the White House, there's been talk about the possibility that this sets the precedent for a declaration of emergency on climate change or gun violence. Uh, Is it that you really just don't like the man and the viewpoint in the White House or it's the specific use of power? It's the principle. The executive branch operates under the rule of law, famously Harry Truman tried to say, we're going to seize a steel mill. That was his action. He thought he had sole authority to act unilaterally. The Supreme Court said no. And that's an important precedent. That's the type of precedent we're going to see here. Are we going to live under the rule of law with constrained authority by the law? Or can presidents basically act freely using this law as a loophole? I'd like to step back. I wonder, uh, you're still fairly new to the job of attorney general, if you've given thought to the balance between how much you want to be perhaps suing the administration, the bully pulpit, versus so many of the other duties in this job. You've got civil rights, you've got consumer protection. Have you thought through that balance in a world of limited resources? When I talk about the bully pulpit, that includes talking about we can't tolerate hate crimes in our state. That includes we have to manage our water appropriately, and we need responsible businesses. The bully pulpit is not only I'm going to stand up for the rule of law and against administration that might do things that are lawless. It's I'm going to stand for the people of Colorado against anyone who could do things that would harm us. Thank you for being with us. It's always a pleasure, Ryan. 
Democrat Phil Weiser is Colorado's attorney general. We spoke in his office Friday afternoon. Let's get some perspective now, the long view, from an emeritus law professor at CU, Hal Bruff. He's author of Untrodden Ground, How Presidents Interpret the Constitution. Bruff was previously a senior attorney in the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel, and he's on the line from Boulder. Hi, Hal. Good morning. I'd love your thoughts first on what we heard from the state attorney general there, his interpretation of presidential power and the limits on that power. What are your impressions? Well, I think that Attorney General Weiser can win a challenge to this presidential action. I think that he should win a challenge, but I don't know whether he will win a challenge. So I share a little doubt with President Trump on how this will come out. You share a little doubt, so you're, you're not uh, looking into your crystal ball for us and giving us a, a solid answer, but help us understand the legal strengths of the administration here and perhaps the legal weaknesses. Yes, here is what it depends on. The question is whether this is a real emergency. The president has declared one, but in the conference in which he declared it, he said, I didn't need to do this. That undermines the presence of any emergency, as the Attorney General said. The difficulty when we get to the courts is that they are very reluctant to look behind the face of a presidential action. So the order says emergency. They do not usually probe that. In this case, however, the president undermined the emergency as he was declaring it. It's a little different, then, from the travel ban case. In that one last summer, five justices upheld a travel ban against people coming from predominantly Muslim nations. The president had said in his campaign months earlier that he might ban all Muslims from entering the U.S. That would be religious discrimination. It would be illegal. But the court said, well, some time has passed. We don't know this order is on its face neutral, and five justices upheld it. So the real question when it gets to the Supreme Court, and I believe it will, is will the court probe the emergency? And on that one, I am uncertain. Yeah, it's fascinating because in his initial remarks, this did not come out. It was when pressed by reporters that the president said, quote, I could do the wall over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this, but I'd rather do it much faster. And so this critical question is whether those remarks that came out in the ensuing minutes would play into some sort of court case. Uh, Also, President Trump defended signing a national emergency uh, by invoking the action of previous presidents. Why don't we listen to this? It's been signed many times before. It's been signed by other presidents. From 1977 or so, it gave the presidents the power. There's rarely been a problem. They sign it. Nobody cares. I guess they weren't very exciting. But nobody cares. They sign it for far less important things in some cases, in many cases. We're talking about an invasion of our country with drugs, with human traffickers, with all types of criminals and gangs. Can you help us, Hal, contrast this emergency declaration with the many, many that have come before it and the many, actually, that remain in place? Uh, Yes, I think so. Many of these emergencies are not exciting. He's right. But this one is. 
An example of one that's not exciting is that President Obama declared a national emergency for the swine flu epidemic. That allowed some waiver of Medicare restrictions on how people could be treated. This one is a real attempt to end-run Congress's control of the power of the purse, so it is much more important. That is why I think it will wind up in the Supreme Court. Has there been an emergency declaration like this before? Can you think of one that even resembles this remotely? Um, All the emergency declarations that I know of involve new developments, new emergencies, an epidemic, the 9-11 attacks, that sort of thing. This one does not involve anything new since the time that Congress denied him funds for the wall, which was, of course, only days before. Could it be argued that the so-called caravan is new here? And I'll just note that those are folks who are most likely seeking asylum. Uh, Those arguments will certainly happen in court. And the president will stress not only anything he can find that's different from when Congress denied the appropriations, but anything that he expects to happen in the near future. That's where... That's why the Supreme Court is reluctant to probe these emergencies. I think they would do so now only on a judgment that this is so fundamental an end run around Congress's power of the purse that they need to take action. That's a tough thing for the court to do. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Emeritus Law Professor at CU Hal Bruff. He is also author of Untrodden Ground, How Presidents Interpret the Constitution. And, uh, Professor, I've been reading the National Emergencies Act. It's a very exciting read. Not. Uh, This was passed in 1976, but, of course, national emergencies were declared well before then. Uh, These are not just a modern phenomenon. The statute is really a procedural one. Uh, When the president declares an emergency, that triggers particular other statutes that say, in times of declared national emergency, the president may do this or that. So it's a way to um, arrange statutory powers, and it also ended some previous emergencies that had gone on a long time. Um, In many ways, the president is right. It's not controversial in most applications. I'll say that the act in 1976 also laid out provisions for how acts might be emergency declarations, that is, might be ended. And one way is for Congress to terminate the emergency by concurrent resolution, it says. So there's this legal path through lawsuits, and then Congress has some power here, doesn't it? Yes. Actually, though, they would have to do the equivalent of a statute because of a Supreme Court case that came along after the act was passed. What this means is the House would have to vote against the declaration the Senate, which would then have to vote within 18 days, would have to vote against it. And the president would be able to veto that. Uh, and, of course, its chances in the Senate are much tougher than they are right now in the Democratic-controlled House. OK, on Friday, President Trump did some legal prognosticating of his own. Let's listen. And we will have a national emergency, and we will then be sued, and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, uh, even though it shouldn't be there. 
and we will possibly get a bad ruling, and then we'll get another bad ruling, and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court, and hopefully we'll get a fair shake, and we'll win in the Supreme Court. Just like the ban, they sued us in the Ninth Circuit, and we lost, and then we lost in the appellate division, and then we went to the Supreme Court, and we won. Is that about the, the right legal analysis from the president? I think his prediction is very close to being right. The one difference is, again, that the travel ban was challenged for statements he had made many months earlier. This one is for statements he made while announcing the emergency that he declared. You don't just speak from your experience as a law professor. As I noted earlier, you were on the White House Legal Council that advised President Jimmy Carter during the Iran hostage crisis in 1979. I think that involved an emergency declaration, too, didn't it? Uh, It did. I was in the Justice Department. The Iranians took 54 U.S. diplomats as hostages. President Carter declared a national emergency froze all of the Iranian money that was sitting in U.S. banks. And it then took well over a year to uh, defuse the crisis. Hal, thanks so much for this analysis. And we might check back in with you as this moves along, not only in the courts, but potentially in Congress as well. I just I wonder briefly if there's anything you'd add that we haven't gotten to in terms of the legal import here. I think we've covered much of it. I think the thing I want to emphasize is the question is, is this case different from the travel ban? Uh, And I've said why I think it is that the president undermined it as he issued it. I think that will be the crux of the case as it goes through the courts, and people should watch that. That's Hal Bruff. He's the Rosenbaum Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Colorado Law School and author of Untrodden Ground, How Presidents Interpret the Constitution. The state's prosecutors are filing more felonies than ever before, but the state's crime rate doesn't match those numbers. Neither does the prison population, which has remained relatively flat. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry is trying to figure all this out. And hi, Allison. Hello, Ryan. You've found that felony filings are up almost 20 percent over two years in Colorado. So are people committing more crimes? Well, not really, which may seem counterintuitive, but let me explain. Oftentimes, people are charged with multiple felonies for a single incident. You know, you rob a bank or something, and you're charged with robbing a bank and stealing a car and all this other stuff. So the big number I've been tracking isn't people being charged, but the actual counts filed. And we're talking about a lot of felonies, about 54,000 in 2018. But I've learned something really interesting about the people involved, which is that fully half of those felonies, the 54,000, were against people who are already in the criminal justice system. So really, it's largely the same people committing crimes. Is that normal compared to what's going on elsewhere in the country? No. Colorado's recidivism rate is way higher than the national average, which is about 40 percent. Recidivism, committing another crime, as you say. And why is Colorado's recidivism rate worse 
Well, the people I've talked to can't point to a single concrete reason, but there are theories. Tom Raines heads the District Attorney's Council. It's kind of an umbrella group for all of the state's prosecutors. And he says the problem likely lies in whatever happens after sentencing. We're doing something wrong, in the, whether it's in the sentencing, the supervision, the treatment or lack of treatment. And it's probably all of the above. Uh, but it certainly merits a, a deeper dive into, into what's going on with these folks. But other people have other theories. Like? Well, I've talked to the Adams County and Boulder County DAs, for example, and they think there's an addiction crisis in Colorado that's spawning more crime. Here's Boulder's DA, Michael Doherty. Drug addiction is a very serious problem in the community, and as a result, people will sometimes resort to property crimes to feed their addiction. But it's also people having stuff stolen off their front porch, bikes being stolen, cars and homes being broken into. Those crimes are often associated with drug addiction because people are looking for any means possible to feed the addiction. So basically, it's not that all these felonies are for drugs, you know, possessing them, selling them, but it's from people who are addicted to drugs and it's sparking waves of other crimes. It's a bit like peeling away an onion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, more felonies leads back to more people reoffending. Mm-hmm. It goes back to perhaps more people struggling with addiction. So what do we know about the addiction crisis in Colorado? Well, it's kind of a million-dollar question. You know, it depends on who you ask. The Adams County DA, Dave Young, attributes it to the passage of Amendment 64, which, you know, legalized recreational marijuana several years ago. He says since then, he's seen all kinds of insidious drug problems on his desk, addiction to harder drugs, illegal grows, et cetera. I would say drugs and the passion to get more drugs leads to all sorts of different crimes. That's a controversial opinion, though, isn't it? Very controversial. I mean, marijuana advocates would dismiss the idea of this gateway drug notion. But Young's take is that legalization of marijuana has attracted some sort of criminal element to the state, and that might be contributing to more crimes. So that's a law enforcement perspective. Right. What what do, like, marijuana advocates and others say? Well, I'm not sure Christy Donner would call herself a marijuana advocate, but she does lead the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition. And she She thinks and her organization thinks that DAs and police have spent way too much time on drugs and drug prosecutions. And her group is pushing some sentencing reform proposals in the legislature this year that would reduce the penalties for drug possession from a low-level felony to a misdemeanor. That would mean no one would be sitting in prison for for possessing drugs. You know, for us, it's all about drugs, 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 and more drugs. Uh, We've been losing the drug war for 40 years. We continue to lose it. So her point is that criminalizing addiction and possession is not the right way to get people help. That especially if you look at the recidivism rate, which we talked about earlier, it's not doing anyone any good. It's costly to the state to imprison people. It's clearly creating some revolving door of certain people to serve sentences, get out, and then come back again. Speaking of recidivism, it seems like treatment and support would also help people who come out of prison. I mean, either with addiction problems or just generally. Yes, yes. I talked to Hassan Latif. He runs this very interesting place in Aurora called the Second Chance Center. It's basically a place where people who are fresh out of prison or jail can go get help. Bus passes, housing, food, but also some mental health support. He's got some support groups. He talks a lot about how without this kind of support, it's very easy for people to get out of prison and go get that second felony and end up back in Dave Young's courtroom, for example. So that's been probably the biggest part of our success is getting folks to buy into the the idea that life could really, really be different. You just have to commit to doing some things differently. So I'll note that the recidivism rate among people who go through Latif's program is 10%. That's 40 full percentage points lower than the statewide average. So he's doing something right. Oh, my goodness. Maybe something to replicate. Allison, thank you. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry tracking the curious rise in felony filings in Colorado. 
The EPA has a new timeline to develop safe drinking water limits for two toxic chemicals, chemicals that have contaminated water supplies across the country, including in Colorado. CPR's Dan Boyce reports from Fountain in El Paso County, where these chemicals came from nearby Peterson Air Force Base. The EPA plan addresses two chemical types. They have long scientific names, but are called PFOS for short. They can be found in certain non-stick coatings like Teflon, cleaning products, and firefighting foam used on military bases. And there's evidence linking them to cancer and other health problems. El Paso County is working to reduce elevated PFOS levels in the Fountain Creek watershed south of Colorado Springs. Affected towns have switched to clean drinking water sources or filters, but the chemicals remain in the groundwater. We get it's frustrating because people want something done now. That's EPA Regional Administrator Doug Benevento at a press conference in the town of Fountain. The newly released plan lays out a proposed set of rules intended to lower the amount of PFOS in water sources. It also provides tools and methods to detect and limit the chemicals. Environmental groups and politicians, like Democratic Senator Michael Bennett, complain the new plan will take too long to implement and is too narrow. The PFOS chemicals it covers are just two of a much broader category of compounds considered toxic. As part of the plan's rollout, EPA officials took questions from concerned Fountain Area residents about safety and the long-term cost of cleanup. Liz Rosenbaum is a member of the Fountain Valley Clean Water Coalition, a group formed to work on the PFOS contamination. She says the geographic area where the state and the Air Force have tested water sources is not broad enough. We wanted them to go beyond that parameter and continue until you're not getting any data for these contaminants. Rosenbaum says her group is also seeking state legislation to ban the type of firefighting foam that led to the fountain area contamination, especially because, she says, the particular chemical in that foam is not covered by the new EPA plan. For its part, the Air Force has spent millions phasing out this firefighting foam and says it will continue to fund testing and cleanup. In Fountain, Dan Boyce, CPR News. When it comes to women in corporate leadership, Colorado has some catching up to do. Nearly 40 percent of the public companies based here still have all-male boards, not one woman. That's according to a new study by BoardBound. It's part of the Women's Leadership Foundation. So why aren't more women on boards or in executive positions in Colorado? We're going to get answers today from Joe Lynn Whiting. She is the chair of BoardBound. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you. And Denny Post is CEO of Red Robin, the restaurant chain headquartered in Greenwood Village. Hi, Denny. Hi. Great to be here. Set the scene for us, Joe Lynn. Where does Colorado rank compared to other states? Well, we're accustomed to Colorado being a leader, but in this case, uh, of the 26 states that have at least 20 Russell 3000 companies headquartered in their state. These are important big companies. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, Colorado is near the bottom at number 21. Which is so remarkable when you think about how progressive we think of the state being, right? And, And unacceptable in terms of performance for businesses based here. What do you think the reasons are? Well, I think there's a number of things. One is boards in general have traditionally called on CEOs to sit on their boards. And there is an unfortunate dearth of female CEOs uh, in public companies. There's only two of us out of 109 here in Colorado. 
But um, more importantly, I think the opportunity is for them to reach below the CEO to other very talented CFOs, heads of, of HR, et cetera, to represent on their boards. That's interesting. So it's a pipeline problem with CEOs. Agree. In part. Agree. It seems that if there are two, we could name the other one. So Red Robin is one. What's the other one? The other one is Wow. Would you uh-huh. speak to that? Teresa Elder is CEO of uh, Wide Open West, which is Wow, the cable company. Okay. Uh, what would you add, uh, JoLynn, in terms of the pipeline problem here? Yes, and uh, we also looked at what's called named executive officers, the top uh, executives of each company here in Colorado, and only 13% of them are women right now. Mm -hmm. So we do have a lot of talent, though, a lot of people that are expert in their fields, that have a lot of industry experience, and can add a lot of value. So we think the talented women are there. It's a matter of people looking for them and bringing them on board. Well, and they need not only source in Colorado as well. That's the right. board that I'm on, other than Red Robin, is out of state. I'm on the board of a, of a Florida-based company. So there are, they can source from the entire country uh, to be able to represent on a board. Oh, that's fascinating. Do you think that there's something about the industry here traditionally? I mean, I think of our oil and gas past mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. might have something to do with this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, for example, the natural resources oil and gas and mining companies only have 10 percent women on boards. So it is less. But look, we've got uh, leaders. Newmont Mining has five women on their board and a woman board chair. And I, yeah, I would point out, even if they're in oil and gas, they employ a lot of people. So people is part of their challenge. And looking, for example, to head of HR, um, people who have experience that can bring in women who have that experience who can bring that in. I think what I hear you saying is that in terms of grooming corporate leadership, companies ought to be looking deeper in their ranks, absolutely further below the positions they might normally to to populate boards. To populate absolutely. Boards. Yes, look look beyond that because the other thing is a board is the CEO's boss. And they aren't they don't run the company in the sense of the company expertise. They represent and make sure that the appropriate leader, leadership and the strategy is correct. So uh, you need more uh, more capability than just expertise in that category or now, that business. What's so interesting is that there's been this oil and gas passed to Colorado, and it's certainly part mm-hmm. of its, its present, there's no doubt. But the, the future seems to be a lot of tech. Absolutely. And I have heard so much about male dominance in tech. So mm-hmm. I wonder if mm-hmm. the new mm-hmm. industries that Colorado is relying on are naturally biased towards men as well, Jolynn. Yes, uh, you're right. The tech companies are below average, but I see many of them stepping up and changing that. And uh, one of the things we're encouraging is private companies, even before Mm -hmm. they have their IPO, to bring women on board. Uh, SendGrid, for example, uh, before they were recently acquired, did have two women on their board. So we do have positive examples but it is something that people have to prioritize. Well, the other thing is the business case is clear. Uh, it's been there for quite some time. Boards with three or more women on their board have a better earnings per share representation over five years, plus 37% versus minus eight for boards that don't have that kind of representation. So the business case is clear, but there's also soft benefits. You see higher innovation, which is critical for tech companies. You see much better uh, retention and, and focus on the people issue of whom you employ and how you reward and incent them 
I'm so glad you brought this up because my fundamental question was, other than having boards naturally reflecting yeah. the general population. 50 percent, 51 percent. Thank right. you very much. What is, the, <laughs> what is the inherent benefit here? And are, those are those are provable. Those are demonstrable. Anything you'd add, Jolyn? Well, uh, there's fewer governance controversies. Did you realize there's 40 percent fewer mm-hmm. financial restatements if women are on the board? And That's I think a lot of that is that women speak truth to power. Uh, they ask a lot of questions. And what the conference board found in one study is that it's the whole board's effort norms go up when women join. Mm-hmm. Uh, women are excited to be on the board. They're well prepared. They're asking great questions. And soon you find that the whole board is more engaged. Mm-hmm. Okay, Denny Post, CEO of Red Robin. <laughs> Um, what have you experienced as a woman on a board, as a CEO, that perhaps indicates to you um, there's something of the old guard going on? Oh, my goodness. Well, um, anytime I tell people, or particularly men, that I'm the CEO of Red Robin, often a kind of a flicker of incredulity crosses their face. But one of my favorites is I tend to greet guests when I'm in our restaurants and I spend a lot of time and I approach the table and a relatively young gentleman, I said, hello, I'm Red. I'm the CEO of Red Robin. And he said, the CEO of this one? And I said, no, that would be the general manager. And he said, the CEO of all of Denver? And I said, keep going. And ultimately, we got to the fact that I'm the CEO of the company, which operates in 42 states and two western provinces of Canada. But it's hard for uh, many men to believe that uh, a female CEO is standing in front of them. Okay, so that's about the belief that men have about women. Mm -hmm. Is there something here about the belief women have in themselves? Yes, absolutely. And what, what they see as possible and manageable. I see this all the time, particularly with young women in organizations, is they tend to feel like they need to check every single box to put themselves forward for an opportunity where three guys have said, hold my beer, I've got this job. So <laughs> seriously, we will dither and ask and, and you know, and, and our network is mainly, mainly made of women as well. So women will tend to say, well, you're not, you haven't done that yet. Or you're not ready. Women have to give voice to their ambition and raise their hand early and often for things that take a little more risk and but will also advance them. They play it safer. They play it much safer. They play it much more, uh, yeah, much uh, safer, risk averse, uh, much more cautious, much more tendency to be hard on themselves. How are you trying to change that at Boardbound, JoLynn Whiting? Uh, well, one thing that we're doing is speaking to young women in uh, universities. So that when they're planning their career, they're thinking of boards as being part of that career path. We also are equipping women to skillfully step into board service. We have a corporate board-bound program and a community board-bound program. So that over in the corporate board-bound program over a year, you have workshops that help you think through uh, what is your value proposition, what would be good matches for your talent, and also to... What's your networking plan to mm-hmm. get you there? Networking is so critical. Yeah. That's uh, why for so long boards have been made up of mostly men because they tag each other and recommend each other. And without that female network or source, it's very hard for us to hold people accountable, I think, uh, to, to really make create the diversity that will represent the population. Oh, that's interesting. The network, in a way, mm-hmm. is kind of self um, – Perpetuating. Self-perpetuating. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you, you know, for finding that word for me. I'm sorry. 
Um, I, I wanted to just talk about how everyone, everyone listening can make a difference on this. Mm-hmm. If you think about the companies that you purchase from, the Absolutely. companies you invest in, uh, do they have women on their boards? And so that's something we can all make a difference because, in. Because, you know, women make most of the purchasing decisions in this country. And that's what frustrates me the most is they are not represented as they should be on boards. And they um, they need to use the power of the purse to ask for more of it, and the shareholders need to be demanding more. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate your perspectives. Thank you. Thanks. You heard from JoLynn Whiting. She's chair of BoardBound, which helps connect women to high-ranking corporate positions. Denny Post is CEO of Red Robin. The whole thing, not just one store, not just one area, uh, that's the burger chain in Greenwood Village. That's where their headquarters are. Disposable straws have become enemy number one in the global movement against plastic waste. In Colorado, lawmakers are considering whether to restrict their use in restaurants. As CPR's Sam Brash found, businesses are trying to get ahead of cities on this issue. Take a seat at Centro Mexican Kitchen in Boulder and you'll get a glass of water, but no straw. Could I actually get one of these straws? Absolutely. That'd be my pleasure. All right. The waiter brings back a paper straw, sort of like the cardboard center of a roll of paper towels, but a lot narrower. Yeah, it seems to work pretty well. They work great. You know, for the time that someone's using a straw, it it works out just fine. This is Dave Query. He owns Centro along with about a dozen other establishments across the Front Range, and he decided to move all of his restaurants away from plastic straws last year. We're trying to reduce the plastic landfill issues that we're all having. Query made the decision after seeing nature documentaries like Blue Planet. Where they're cutting these birds open and these fish, and they're filled with computer parts and straws. And this problem is getting bigger and bigger, and so this is our tiny little effort at at helping. Many other Colorado restaurants are voluntarily moving away from plastic straws, along with much bigger companies like Starbucks. Now, as public pressure grows, a group representing Colorado eateries is asking state lawmakers for regulation. Nick Hoover is with the Colorado Restaurant Association. This is an approach that we were able to get behind and isn't going to kill our businesses. Hoover's group is pushing a bill that would prohibit establishments from just handing out plastic straws unless a customer requests one. And he's honest about why. We looked around the country and saw that packaging bills were coming up in other states and local jurisdictions. In other words, the association isn't just interested in saving straws. It wants to save restaurants from cities that might enact stricter rules, rules that could require pricey paper or bamboo straws. And that could soon be more likely. Some lawmakers and political groups are reconsidering a 25-year-old policy that bars municipalities from regulating plastics. This bill would expressly prohibit local communities from doing anything about straws. Hoover says it's a bit of insurance, a way to make sure local straw laws stay off the books. Some things just need to be done statewide. Because if you were to allow 64 counties... 300-plus municipalities, the ability to dictate what products you can use, how you can use them. It's going to be virtually impossible for someone who operates in multiple counties to understand what standard they're operating under at any given time. 
Well, um, I, I understand that concern. Randy Mormon is a policy advocate for EcoCycle, a Boulder-based recycling nonprofit which opposes the bill because it blocks local governments from going further. When you when you talk about straws upon request, it's a good first step, but there's certainly so much more that communities can do, and we should enable them and allow them to do that. Mormon also notes that the current bill lacks any penalty for restaurants that fail to follow the rules. And there are lots of exceptions. Restaurants with those self-serve straw dispensers, takeout and delivery, drive throughs all wouldn't be covered. Mormon says a better model is in California. That state enacted its own straw and demand law earlier this year, and it lets cities tack on their own regulations. In California, local communities decide on their own if they want to apply stronger regulations like adding fees or fining restaurants. And that's where the regulation and the enforcement should lie. Susan Lantine, a Democratic state representative from Denver, is sponsoring the bipartisan bill. She says she's willing to reconsider that part of it. Colorado does like to talk about how we are all about local control. And so I would like to visit a little bit more about that specific area of the policy. If those restrictions on local governments come out, the Restaurant Association says it would have to reconsider its support. The one Republican backing the bill says he'd rather not engage in hypotheticals before the bill comes up for debate. Other Republican lawmakers say the state should just leave the whole straw thing to the free market. The bill gets its first hearing later this month. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Denver artist Suchitra Matai has an extraordinary imagination. She has taken hundreds of vintage saris and woven them into colorful tapestries. She turned an old merry-go-round into experimental art. She's a painter, a sculptor, does collage, video, textiles. And her work is getting global attention. She's just one of 90 artists selected for next month's Sharjah Biennial that's in the United Arab Emirates. And Suchitra, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. You often dig into your own heritage through your artwork. You've said that heritage is complex. How how so? Yes. So I always consider myself an outsider among outsiders. I was born in Guyana, a country no one really knows about, uh, but I'm of South Asian heritage, and my family uh, was brought to Guyana uh, during colonialism, um, the British colonial rule, as indentured laborers. And what kind of labor did they do in Guyana? It was, it was all related to sugar, so, uh, you know, sugar plantations. When someone asks uh, where you come from or what your heritage is, what's the short answer that you give them? It's really hard. It's really <laughs> difficult because um, I'm Indian. I'm in, I'm from Latin America, but not geographically, but not culturally, right? I'm from the Caribbean culturally, but not geographically. And I'm Indian, but again, not geographically, South Asian. So um, I usually say I'm from, nowadays I say I'm from Guyana, but it's, it's complicated and I have to do a lot of explaining. Was that something that embarrassed you when you were little? Is it something that you're coming to embrace as beautiful? Talk to me about your relationship with that identity. Yes. So I grew up, I was born in Guyana, but I grew up also in Nova Scotia, Canada. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and all over the East Coast. And I, at different points in my life, I've tried to, you know, assimilate 
you know? And so it's been always difficult. I think in my 20s, I really wanted to be Indian. And I went and studied South Asian art. I wanted to connect to that past. Um, now I'm very proud of being Guyanese. I mean, that's what I am. And I feel as though, uh, you know, it's the fifth largest immigrant population in New York City. Um, there's the a, Guyanese population? Yes, believe it or not. I read that oh, recently. Yeah. So it's, and I'm from that area. So I've really embraced it. How has art helped you navigate all this? Art is my means of expression, and it's always been my means of expression. I think um, I've always wanted to be an artist. My immigrant parents made it difficult, let's say. Uh, But art allows me to sort of delve into some of the sort of the deeper issues surrounding immigration, migration, borders, all of those kinds of things. How did your parents make it difficult for you? Is it that they didn't think being an artist was a real job? Yes, they did. We didn't know any other artists, you know, and I think uh, for a lot of new immigrants, it's about survival, right? It's about um, being practical. And uh, my parents, we didn't know any artists. I didn't know any artists. I didn't really see how I could be an artist. Have they come around? Yes, <laughs> they have. What was the turning point? I think when they realized I was going to do nothing else. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, it, that it was futile. It was futile, yes. So uh, that is the point at the point of, uh, you know, turn. Did they have anything specific in mind for you? Like, did they want you to be a doctor or a lawyer or something? I have a degree in statistics. I was going to be an actuarial scientist. So, yes. An actuarial An actuarial. An actuary, yes. Yeah. Does any of that schooling, that sort of mathematic understanding, enter your work? You know, people ask me that, and it's an interesting question. I don't think of it um, on a daily basis, but definitely the way I problem solve and... um, and, and think about grids and all sorts of things. Definitely, It definitely comes into play. Okay, so Sutritra Matai, let's talk about your work. I mentioned the woven saris. These will be a part of this prestigious show near Dubai. Yes. Where did you find all these saris? So they and describe come... a sari just in case yes, our so listeners a, are in the dark about that. A sari is the six-yard by uh, several feet um, woven garment usually bright in color, that Indian women wear, South Asian women wear. And uh, it was important to me to use these because, um, well, for one, I wanted to use a fiber element in my work because I grew up always making with my hands, crocheting. Uh, My grandmother was a seamstress, and I was always connected to that sort of making. And so I wanted to use a textile, um, an actual textile. So the saris are from India, and they're from my own family, and they're also from Sharjah, where the biennial is taking place. Oh, interesting. Yes, because uh, the Emirates is actually comprised the population of 50% South Asians. And uh, it was important to me to use the saris because it became a monument uh, to the women there, but also, you know, it connected, you know, in, in a sense, it's a woven genealogy, right? It's think taking uh, saris from my ancestors and from other diasporas. But But uh, back to the 50% South Asians, they're mostly laborers. And so that connects back to my uh, own narrative of labor. Of what your ancestors did in Guyana on the sugar plantations. Yes, exactly. When I think of making art out of clothing, I think of the intimacy of clothing and the fact that people's 
sweat has been there and their yes. their their smells, their sort of essence, and how how raw and wonderful that can be. Oh, it was be- it was a beautiful experience. So I some of the saris did have smells, to be honest, women's perfume, you know, things like that. Um, I actually wept uh, making the first one. Um, I felt this connection, uh, you know, to these worn garments of people from all over the world. And I, I really felt this connection to those women. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the Denver visual artist, Suchitra Matai. She's going to be a part of the Sharjah Biennial. This is in the United Arab Emirates. And uh, suffice it to say, it's a big deal that she's been chosen uh, because very few artists around the world are picked for this. Uh, okay, I mentioned um, repurposing a merry-go-round. Yes. I, I, I Help people understand how you did this. <laughs> so... My work, uh, the piece is about borders, and it's about how... How uh, timely. I know, right? Um, How uh, political borders sort of configure and reshape, uh, you know, the spheres of culture, community, family, and the individual. And so the tapestries are one part of the project, but I also took video. Um, We'll talk about that. But the merry-go-round. So when I went on my site visit to Sharjah... um, we visited an abandoned school, and the the ar- architect of that school had designed many of the schools in the region, so I felt that it was emblematic of the place. Um, this school was abandoned. I saw all this amazing uh, schoolyard equipment just half in the ground, half out of the ground, and it felt uh, those those wor- those pieces became art to me. And so they're actually migrating the merry-go-round and automating it, uh, putting it on a motor for me as part of my work. Is this the kind of merry-go-round like I would have played on as a kid? Where yes. You, it was kind of self-powered. Yes. And you'd, yes. Yeah. They were and kind of death traps, as yes. I recall. Yes. Like- <laughs> and uh, we actually looked into using it, uh, having it be um, you know, activated in that way. Uh, but we decided it was too dangerous for children. But it, it is a part of the work. And um, to me, it spins a narrative of a childhood innocence um, in the midst of this sort of discussion about borders. But it also um, speaks to the cycles of migration of peoples around the world. And then what will be displayed on video? So, Is there anything you don't do, by the way? You know, Name the... one piece of art that you have not done. There's a lot. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I think I don't feel... Um, limited uh, in terms of materials. And I think the ideas that I have sometimes uh, warrant the use of, of different kinds of materials. So I embrace, I embrace that part. Um, but the videos, okay. So I wanted to go to contested border sites and take video. Um, I'm taking abstract video of the actual fences. So Is this the, a, along which border? So um, one of the borders was the U.S.-Mexico border. All right. And this is a great story because uh, I had planned the trip to Tijuana, uh, well, to to San Diego Tijuana border, this the, the border there, and the caravan had arrived the day I arrived, and I found the border I wanted. It was in Calexico, and when 
part of the caravan had actually been there and was actually still there as they were being rerouted to Tijuana. Um, I felt the power uh, of the place. I felt powerless in the place as an immigrant and as a brown woman. Uh, I was scared. I was scared taking video there. There were there was tons of border uh, police and helicopters and whatnot. So that was the first. That was one of my sights. Uh, what an intense time to be there and to have captured it on video. But you, yes. you did go through with it. Yes, you do I have did. that on video. Yes, I do. And so that will be part of this show. Um, it's been fascinating exploring your mind. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me. That is Denver visual artist Suchitra Matai. She's working uh, ahead of the 14th Sharjah Biennial in the United Arab Emirates, which opens next month. It's a prestigious thing to be invited to that. She's one of less than 100 artists around the world who'll take part. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters. You've got CPR News.